Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name again this morning. It's good to be here. I've been blessed. Um, Keith, your devotional this morning, the Sunday school time, our prayer time together, singing. It's a blessing uh, to be here with you all again this morning. I did see Julianne here somewhere. Um, it's, it was good to see her again this morning, and I wondered if maybe she felt like she belonged in the other side of the world in the hope that she can feel like she belongs here again today. I also saw uh, Randall and Althea uh, somewhere along the line. It's good to see them here. Marilyn, it's good to see you here this morning. Wasn't sure if you'd be able to make it with what you've been going through, so I consider that a blessing to have you here. And, you know, as I think about these things and I think about what Floyd is, is struggling through right now, I find it impossible to reconcile that with an all-powerful and good God outside of the last verse of the last song that we sang. And that is, it is enough. Earth struggles soon will cease. And Jesus calls us to that heavenly peace. And yet we're not there. We're not there this morning. And that's very clear. And so we still struggle And we still wrestle through where we're at today. And may we do that faithfully and may we do that well. I hope that we can be encouraged to do that this morning. This is the third part of a four-part series on faith. Uh, Part one, we looked at the definition of faith, why faith is necessary. Is there room for faith in today's modern scientific era where we figure everything out through um, testing physically. Uh, faith is defined in Hebrews 11.1, 1, so go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11. That's where we'll be spending most of our time today. It's defined in Hebrews 11.1 1 as substance, foundation, or confidence, and evidence, proof, or assurance of what we hope for and do not see. Foundation, confidence, evidence, proof, assurance of what we hope for and what we do not see. That is the definition of faith. And so it's a solid foundation for us upon which our hopes are set in the physically unseen. And faith is necessary to to please God. Alvin mentioned this already. See Hebrews 11 verse 6. But faith is required to believe anything at all that I have not personally experienced. And even because of the reality that our memories are challenged from time to time, it it would be fair to say faith is required to believe anything that I'm not experiencing right now. And we talked about how there is room for faith in the modern scientific era and how, as a matter of fact, without faith in God, it's questionable of whether modern science would have ever came to be at all. Because the fathers of modern science pursued the lawgiver, God himself. And because they pursued the lawgiver, they looked for his laws in nature. And our faith in God is not random or haphazard, but it's rather it's rational and evidence-based. Rational and evidence-based. In addition to that, miracles are not counter-science, but rather evidence that an almighty God can reach in in the world that we live in any time he desires to and do what he wants, and that he has absolute control over the laws of science and can suspend them momentarily if he wishes to. And we pray. We pray to that end. 
from time to time that the laws of science would be momentarily suspended, but it's really up to God what he decides to do with that. In part two, we looked at the popular heroes of faith in chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 31. We looked at how they practice their faith, who can have faith, and some examples of faith. And again, Hebrews 11:6 makes it clear that faith is required to please God. We must have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And we compared and contrasted the lives of Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, an incredible saint who followed God, it seems like, all of his life, versus Rahab, the heathen prostitute, and how God changed her heart and her life through her faith in him. And we looked at examples of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and others. In part three today, we're going to look at some of the less popular heroes of faith found in the passage that uh, Alvin read, Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. And Lord willing, in part four, I'd like to uh, look at stories of faith from our congregation here. And I mentioned this a couple of times. I have a few stories, and I need a few more. And I've heard some of you say, I'd like to get you a few stories about faith uh, from people here in our church. And so I'd like to have a few more of those so you can text them to me or email them to me or WhatsApp them to me or tell them to me if you'd like. I'd like to have a few more. They don't have to be, again, they don't have to be otherworldly or unusual or, or uh, incredible. Because think about it. All Abel did was offered what God commanded. All Joseph did was believe what God said and as a result, tell the people of Israel what to do with his bones. And all Rahab did was host some enemy spies. It wasn't a miracle. wasn't incredible. But what I'm looking for is just down-to-earth, real stories of faith from everyday lives, from people that we know here from our congregation, whether, they're, whether they've passed on from this life or whether they're still here with us today. So today we're going to look at Heroes of Faith Part 2. These are the lesser-known heroes of faith. Um, So we'll look at Hebrews 11, particularly we'll start in verses 32 through 35. As we look at Hebrews chapter 11, and as you scan down through there and see some of the names, I'm imagining that in your mind this morning you're thinking, wow, I would really want to be like Abel or Enoch or Noah, or Abraham, or Sarah, or Moses, or yes, even Rahab herself, whose story is proof that God is in the redeeming business and can take a heathen prostitute from the most wicked culture on earth and place her right in line of the Messiah himself. But then as you look down farther in verse 32, what about Samson? Isn't he the one who chased women who did not share his values just because he thought they were beautiful? His desires consistently guided his actions, and ultimately his life ended in suicide. And what about Jephthah? Isn't he the mountain man that ended up sacrificing his own daughter because of a rash oath? And Barak? Wasn't Barak the one who was the coward? Even though the Lord told him to lead the army of God, he refused to go unless Deborah would also go? And so my question for us this morning is, what are these people doing in this chapter? Would I even want these people to be role models for my children? Why are they here? And so as we look at verse 32, we see David, a man after God's own heart, 
but also a man of war, a man who failed and who committed adultery and solicited murder to cover up his adultery. And we see Samuel. Samuel was a very pivotal figure in the Old Testament. He was the last prophet, and he anointed the first two kings. He was faithful to God, but his two sons were not. Instead, using their position of power to gain money, bribes, and to pervert justice. In other words, they used their power for their own gain, and we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then there's the prophets that are mentioned there. And I would imagine that this includes Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Malachi, and on and on the list could go. But what about these others? What about these others? What about Gideon? And we can read about Gideon in in Judges. I find it interesting that there's three men here from the book of Judges a time of incredible upheaval in the history of Israel. And we could look at Gideon. God used Gideon to lead the army of Israel to a great victory over a vast number of Midianites with only 300 men. And Gideon's face shone bright as God whittled his army down from 32,000 men to 300. 1%. 1% of what he started out with. Gideon also refused to become king of Israel when asked, saying that the Lord would be their ruler. But then right after that, Gideon took nearly $1 million worth of gold and made an ephod or an image that the people worshipped and became a snare to Gideon and to his family as well. Gideon had many wives and 70 sons, but after he died, tragedy struck. The people of Israel worshipped Baal again, and one of his sons murdered the rest of his brothers, all except one. And so that's the legacy of Gideon. And Barak, in Judges 4 and 5, Deborah was the judge of Israel at the time, but she enlisted Barak's help to fight against the Canaanites. But Barak refused to go unless Deborah would go with her, and as a result of that, because of his cowardice, the honor of killing the head of the enemy was given to a woman. And then we have Samson in Judges 13 through 16. And Samson is one of the, the more, I would say, confusing stories in the Bible, particularly in the Judges. Samson's parents, as it starts out, were painfully childless until the angel of the Lord appeared to them and told them that they would have a son that would deliver Israel from the Philistines. And I would imagine that they were pretty excited about that. That would be an exciting announcement. Samuel was born, it says. He was blessed by God. And the Spirit of God began to move in him. But Samson did some very selfish things. Like desiring to marry a Philistine woman. Like spending the night with a prostitute. Like blindly desiring a heathen woman to the point that he shared his, the secret of his strength with her. Even though he knew from prior experience and prior actions that she would use it against him. I don't think there's any question that Samson knew what she was going to do with his secret of his strength. But then Samson also did some things that could be used by God. The Spirit of God came among him, and and the only way that you can explain these other things that he did is through the Spirit of God resting on him and the Lord's strength. 
like killing a lion with his bare hands, like killing 30 Philistines to pay a debt that he owed, like tying 300 foxes in 150 sets of two with torches between them and sending them through the tinderbox of the standing shocks of grain, like killing a thousand men at one time with a donkey's jawbone, like carrying off the city gates so that the enemy couldn't trap him, like pushing down the two load-bearing pillars in the temple of the enemy, killing many of the enemy in his death, more so than even in his life. And then we have Jephthah in Judges 11 and 12, son of a prostitute, sent away by his family because of that. When his people were in trouble by the enemy, they asked him to lead them into battle. And the Spirit of the Lord also came upon Jephthah, but he made a foolish vow to sacrifice whatever would come out of his door first to meet him if they gained the victory over Ammon. And his daughter, his only child, was the first one to come and greet him after the victory. And so he did to her what he had vowed. And so what can we observe from Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah? The time of the judges was a very unstable time for the nation of Israel. And from time to time, these people, and we could probably even say more than from time to time, these people acted more like the Canaanites that they had removed from the land than the people of God. Can you imagine the depth of the grief that God must have felt? I brought these people out of Israel. I brought them into the new land. And they are acting more like the Canaanites that they came to destroy than like the people of God himself. And one of the themes in the Judges is found in both chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 25. And that is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his his own eyes. And yet through all this struggle and difficulty and people turning away from God and people acting like the heathen and people doing whatever they wanted to do in their own sight, God used men, imperfect men, men that we might say were very, very far from perfect, and women that were very, very far from perfect. And he honored the little glimmers of faith that he saw in their hearts from here and there. And he put his spirit upon them for a time, and he honored their choices when they chose to believe that God exists and when they chose to believe that God rewards those who diligently seek them. In the dark time of the judges, when the people did whatever they wanted, God honored the little glimmers of faith and the choices that men made from time to time that God exists and that God rewards those who diligently seek him. And God took the little faith that they did have and he used it for his purposes, his story, and to bring honor to himself. But I want to look at the second part of this passage, uh, particularly looking at uh, verse 35, the second half of verse 35 through verse 39. Because we've talked about many heroes of faith over the last couple of sermons, and if I were to categorize 
the stories of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it would probably go something like this. First of all, we have heroes of faith in everyday life. God calls Abraham, and he goes. Moses chooses suffering with God rather than the glitz and the glamour of Egypt. And Abel offers to God what God asks him to offer. And this is not to say that these acts of faith are small or insignificant or unimportant, but rather it's just to say that they lived out their faith consistently, constantly, time after time after time in the everyday ups and downs of life. And then we have the heroes of faith in times of triumph. And we could read there verses 32 through 35 about these men who subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women received their dead, raised to life again. Unusual circumstances, unusual happenings where people acted in faith and God responded in miraculous ways, and so people had faith in times of triumph. But then we have the third section is heroes of faith in times of difficulty, extreme difficulty. And using the word difficulty seems almost too small of a word to use to define this section. I'll just read the second half of verse 35 through verse 38. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so that's the third group that we're going to look at this morning. Faith in times of extreme difficulty. And so we see a bit here this morning the relationship between faith and pain. You see, these people deliberately and willingly chose faith in God, and verse 35 says that, that they did not accept deliverance. They could have accepted deliverance, and they chose not to. They deliberately and willingly chose faith in God. They believed that God exists. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been willing to suffer for his sake. And they believe that God rewards those who diligently seek him. Verse 35 says that they did this so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They believed that their pain would be rewarded. They weren't just doing it for no reason at all. And now this list in Hebrews chapter 11 is clearly referring to people in the Old Testament. And the Bible doesn't tell us how all the prophets died, but it does hint that some were martyred. And history seems to indicate that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos, and probably others were all martyred for their belief in God and for the way they stood up for what God asked them to stand up to. But I want to take a moment this morning and discuss the issue of pain and faith because I think that it's wrapped up pretty closely together. I have not experienced much pain in my lifetime and so that I cannot identify very well 
with those of you who have. And there are a number, a number among us this morning who are experiencing pain. We talked about Floyd and his current experience. But there's a number of, of the rest of you who are experiencing pain this morning due to recent surgeries, accidents, or maybe you've experienced pain for a long period of time, even many years. And pain can make faith really challenging. Because if God is all-powerful and good, why doesn't he stop pain? Why does God choose to give pain to some people and not others? And the word that we hear a lot is, it's not fair. And it really isn't. Why does God choose to relieve some people's pain and not others? And we hear the phrase, God does not waste your pain. And I have heard some that have experienced pain share that as their testimony. But how do you reconcile that with the reality, with the reality of pain when you're going through it? It takes immense faith to do that. And I would like to honor and bless those of you who are experiencing pain today, whether it's an accident, surgery, short-term illness, long-term health challenge, or some other reason. God bless you and give you grace as you process through the pain while simultaneously, at the same time, having faith in God and in his goodness. In addition, I want to honor those of you who have chosen the path of pain, even though you could have chosen the path of no pain. For example, every time a woman gets pregnant, she is setting herself on track for the extreme pain of childbirth. She is choosing pain. Sure, she looks forward to the joy of having a child, but she is still choosing pain when she could have chosen the path of no pain or less pain. And those of you that have chosen to confront someone on a particular situation where they needed advice or help, you are choosing the path of pain. And when you choose to do the right thing, even though it is the more difficult thing, you are choosing the path of pain. And I want to honor and acknowledge those of you who have deliberately chosen the path of pain, even though you could have chosen an easier path. So any experience with pain is also an opportunity to strengthen our faith. And I want to encourage those of you who are experiencing pain and still keeping your faith in God. God bless you for that. But I also want to recognize that this particular passage is talking about a particular pain, physical pain, that one person inflicts on another due to that person's choice to follow God or follow Jesus in particular. And again, this is an area that we know very little or probably nothing at all about, but an area that I believe it's good for us to stay acquainted with, it's good for us to read about, and it's good for us to think about. Because when times are good, especially when a nation goes through years of little to no persecution, we tend not to think about it. Why would you think about it if you don't have to? But we have opportunities this morning to stay connected. We can read stories of those who suffered and persevered. Of course, we can read the Bible. There's plenty of stories in there about martyrs and others who suffered and persevered. 
And so while this section in Hebrews 11 is referring to the Old Testament martyrs, I'm going to share two stories this morning of martyrs after the time of Christ and after the time of the New Testament. This first story is from the martyr's mirror. And I wonder this morning if we shouldn't have more of a tradition of reading the martyr's mirror in our, t- in our homes from time to time. I haven't. I've hardly ever opened the book at all. But I think that there would be value in spending more time in that book, reading about those who, per- who, who persevered. This story in particular is about four men, Christian, Cornelius, Matthew, and Hans in Antwerp, Belgium in 1567. On Sunday, August 10th, Christian uh, went, to help some belie- went to a believer's gathering to help mediate between a dispute between a couple of brothers. So he was going to a different place on Sunday than he typically would have to help mediate a dispute between two brothers. And he knew it could be dangerous, but he went to help anyway. But the church meeting was found out uh, by a local captain who came and asked what the meeting was about. The, lo- the captain sent for the local military commander, and a few men conversed with him to give others time to get out of the house, and many got away as a result of that. But these four men were taken into prison, and, await- and while they were awaiting their sentence, they experienced a lot of torture, about a month of torture. But after that time, they, were, they, they got to the point where they were happy to find out that they were sentenced to death because the torture was so severe. But Christians struggled with this immensely. You see, he had a wife and children. And he struggled because while he welcomed death to get out of his suffering and to glorify God, he struggled to leave his wife and children behind. On September 13th, they were taken out and led to the marketplace and before the city hall. And on their way, walking through town, they shared their faith with anyone they could until they arrived at the execution spot. Anyone that would listen, they would explain how they were dying for truth and that you should not fear the one that can kill the body, but rather you should fear the one who has the power to kill the body and cast the soul into hell. After the executioners were ready, they beat a drum so that they could not hear the martyrs talking anymore, and they hung these four men and then burned them in the 1500s. And there's story after story after story after story in a similar fashion in the martyr's mirror. The second story I want to share with you is a story that some of you may be familiar with already, a story about Polycarp. He was a a companion and disciple of the Apostle John and eventually was appointed as bishop in the church of Smyrna. So this would have been early on after the time of Christ. He was martyred when he was in his upper 80s or so. He was burned in an arena in Smyrna. But before he was executed, he was given a chance to recant by the Roman proconsul due to his age and his peaceful demeanor. He was told that he would be released if he swore that Caesar was divine. But he refused to, to do so. And he was given another chance, this time to shout away with the atheists, 
since the Romans thought that the Christians were atheists because they didn't have any temples or images of gods. Polycarp did so, but that was not enough to please the bloodthirsty crowd in the arena. And so the proconsul gave him another chance, this time to curse Jesus Christ. And again, Polycarp refused to do so. Frustrated, the proconsul reminded Polycarp that he had wild animals at his disposal. When this failed to face him, the proconsul threatened with fire. Again, Polycarp was unmoved, but rather seemed to welcome his punishment. The proconsul was used to feeling the power of having prisoners beg for mercy at his feet. Why not Polycarp? What made him different? To the crowd of Polycarp's day, he was the victim. But Polycarp, the proconsul, and the others standing by recognized that he was a man with perfect freedom to lay down whatever it was he was called to lay down. That day, in front of thousands of people in the arena at Smyrna, Polycarp displayed his faith and his freedom in Christ for all to see. And so as we conclude this morning, what can we learn? I think one of the things that we can learn is that a life of faith isn't always perfect, neat, and tidy. And we can see that in the lives of Samuel and David and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And I believe we can also learn that even a little bit of faith, faith as a grain of mustard seed, as it says in Luke 17, can be used by God in a mighty way. Any acknowledgement of belief, faith, and trust in God brings honor to him. Life is messy, and it doesn't always fit in neat little boxes, even for believers. So what ultimately happened to Samson and to Gideon and to Jephthah anyway? Were they saved or not? I don't think that's the point. That's not our judgment call. We do not know how they lived their lives other than what is given to us in Scripture. And we also, do, we also know that God honored their faith, even though it may have been small at times, and they didn't always live life perfectly. In addition, as we look at the challenge of living a life of pain in conjunction with living a life of faith, how do we reconcile experiencing pain with our faith in God? Why doesn't God take away our pain if he can? May our faith continue to be strong in spite of our experiences and in spite of our pain. And finally, God has called many people to choose pain for his sake. And this is not something that we're actively experiencing now. No one that I know personally is actively experiencing this. It's not something that we need to be afraid of, I don't believe, but something that we should be aware of. And neither do we want to idolize those that have been faithfully martyred, but be aware of their stories, because none of us know whether or not God will call us to that same fate. One of the verses 
of song in our songbooks, in the song Faith of Our Fathers, that always might say bothers me just a little bit. There's a phrase that says this, How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, would die for thee. And I've sung that phrase, I don't know how many times, tens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. But do I really believe that my fate would be sweet if I were to die for God in the same way that we read about many other martyrs throughout history? What is my perspective on death? What is my perspective on life? What is my perspective on following God to whatever he calls me to, whether that is in life or in death? Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for another opportunity that we have today to have faith. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to walk with other people that have faith. And from time to time, Father, we may feel like our faith is small. We may wonder if our faith is large enough to overcome the situation that we're in. And I pray, Father, in those times that you would honor the little faith that we do have. And that as you have done many hundreds and thousands of times throughout history, shown yourself strong when we are weak, regardless of what we are facing. I pray again for Floyd, and I pray for Merlin, and I pray for others that are experiencing challenges. And I pray that you would give them faith in you. I pray that you would bless them, and I pray that you would keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.